as a material index of acoustic activity, the term sound fossil has gained currency in the fields of paleosonics and contemporary art both as a means of accounting for the appearance of the past in the present, and as an embodiment of cosmic time. Drawing upon audible and not so audible projects, art historian Amelia Barrican presents her lecture, Sound Fossils and Arch Fossils, Towards a Mineral Ontology of Contemporary Art, recorded on the 22nd of October 2015 at Gertrude Contemporary. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much, Victoria and Joel and, and Helen, for giving me so much food to think about in the construction of this lecture. And it's been composed of a couple of different threads. I've been thinking a lot recently about art and science fiction out of the book that I did with Helen a couple of years ago. I've also been thinking about time in the work of Robert Smithson, whose image of um, geographic strata you can see up here. And Smithson's paradoxical conception of history as both a kind of stratified sedimentation and a flattened plane of atemporal contingencies and the way that those very, very different kinds of time work together with a very mineral edge in his work. But mainly this lecture is a kind of tribute to the, to the word sound fossil, which I just think is the most awesome term. And I encountered it first in the works of the contemporary French artist Laurent Grasso, but it's also a word that's been used in paleosonics and archaeoacoustics and in physics. And I find it extremely um, ripe for interpretation. And I'm going to use it in a variety of different ways. So sometimes I'm going to put a full stop in between, like sound, fossil. Sometimes I'm going to use it as a way of describing literal audibility of rocks. And sometimes I'm going to talk about what we might call fossilised uh, sound or the recordings of ancient acoustic activity. So the idea is to use this word or this term, this platform, sound fossil, as a way to think about art's capacity to break out of temporal borders, to be anachronic, to cross time zones and to time travel. So I'm going to start with a work. And as a contemporary art historian, I've been very interested in the ways in which the past persists in the present. The idea that the present infects the future and the now, the voices that linger with us, the spectral presences that ghost our time. One of the most popular conceptions of time is the idea of time as a river, the idea of time as a flow or a stream with eddies and currents, never the same river twice as they say, you don't step into it the same way twice, on its journey towards the sea, perhaps. And in this kind of teleological vision of chronology, the subject is realised through the knowledge of its inevitable termination. The river is always going to go somewhere. It's always going to stop. And it's a, it's a very narrow frame of temporality because it doesn't take into account the fact that the river is fed by tributaries, rain, condensation, vapour, oceans, trees. So I, I'm working against a model, of subject, a model of subjectivity and temporality that has a finite endpoint. It doesn't have to be that way. Art can help us to escape from linear conceptions of time and to resist conceptions of time as a relentless flow oriented only towards the future. Art is valued for its potential to create eddies in the river of time, to generate pockets of stillness or sound or silence in which it is possible to return to lost moments and recuperate lost structures, to redraw fading memories and make alternate chronologies. And these ideas seep into and corrode the borders between the living and the dead, pointing to the varying cultural parameters that infect our distinctions between animate and inanimate worlds. 
What might it mean then to think about a mineral ontology of contemporary art? So this project that I'm going to come back to often is a work by the American collaborative duo Ameri um, Melissa Dublin and Aaron S. Davidson, whose work I first encountered about mm, 10 years ago uh, for a project that they made called Last and Lost Transmissions, which was a beautiful radio piece where they collected the final transmissions of broadcasts. So the end point where a ship was lost before contact or the sign off of a famous politician or all of those moments of speech that instigate an end. And then they paired it with found transmissions that people sent in of messages that had never made it to their intended destination points. And they had a radio receiver in the gallery that was broadcasting both the lost and the, and the last transmissions back into space. So there's this kind of play here in their process between ideas of transmission and reception and interference and transference. But the work I really want to talk about is this one, ma Making a Record, Diamond, Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, which is a very long duration piece. It sort of evolved over a five-year period between 2009 and 2014. So in New Mexico in 2009, Dublin and Davidson recorded Aaron's mother, who is a jewellery maker, speaking about the history and the properties of four precious gemstones, diamond, ruby, sapphire and emerald. Weaving a narrative of crystal structures, inclusions, flaws, myths, history, science, fiction and aesthetics, the gemologist offered a series of short portraits about the stones spoken portraits of the stones, which taken together also formed a kind of portrait of herself as a maker and as a gemologist and also as a jeweler. And from these recordings, Dublin and Davison produced four unique lathe cut records, dub plates. And the records were cut using styluses made from diamond, ruby, sapphire and emerald, the gems literally inscribing their content into the surface of the electroplated discs. And after the records were cut, the precious styluses were incorporated into four 22 karat gold designed pendants, which were designed and made by Karen. And they each featured the crystal stones along with the lithic stylus that had been used to inscribe the story. So you can kind of see in the middle there inside that, um, above, the, above the, what's the green one? Emerald. Above the emerald, there's this, long section, that's where the stylus that was used to cut the record is, is kept. So the pendants and the recordings, so the stories of the stones and the stones in their natural state and the stylus, were given to a number of different persons to wear or to listen to, a curator, an artist, a writer, a geologist, a psychoanalyst and a hypnotist. And each wearer was invited to contribute a response to their encounter with the stones. They had, a, they had to have an exposure to them for a certain period of time and then produce something in, in response to this, to this situation. So Pierre Huig offered a poem that he called Voice Matter. The geologist Violine Sauter, who is a curator at the Museum of Natural History and she works with NASA on the analysis of rocks from Mars. I met her in Paris and she was an amazing person. She provided an image and a conversation and the actress Alina Lowenstein wore one of them during her public performances and then later spoke about her encounter publicly in the gallery. So it's a fairly sort of complex and stratified project, but at its core is a fairly direct question, how to take seriously the possibility of non-human knowledge, of knowledge from the stones. How does this knowledge be, how does this knowledge be heard? How can the stones speak? And what kind of language is consecrated? How is it audible? And of course, you know, I guess you've all been going to Joel's um, Joel's liquid architectures, 
uh, talks on audibility and the politics of listening. And of course, there's a really political edge here. And the hunch that I'm following is that making a record pivots on a kind of material knowledge that remains indifferent or ambivalent to its incorporation within an artistic context. So what I'm suggesting is that the properties of the stones have a function beyond that of their incorporation into the artwork. We might think of this as the stoniness of the stones, the inert silence of the inorganic material that persists even as the materials are co-opted for use in an art context. And this, I, Think of it as a sort of double ontology where things can be made to stand in for other things, but also standing in for themselves. There's a ghost here, I guess, of a post-minimalist aesthetic in a sense that representation gives way to presentation. But I'm suggesting that an object stands. It doesn't stand in, it just is. The stone is a stone. It's a very different conception from Frank Stella's what you see is what you see. It's more of a Robert Smithson-esque, we are not there, we are not seeing it we are reconstructing an inability to see or to hear in this sense. We're talking about silence. Speaking about making a record in interview, Melissa Dubbin and Aaron Davidson explained that we know each stone molecularly carries with it the history of its creation, how it was produced from the interior of the earth, even if we can't directly access it. By sending this person's voice through the stone, another kind of story could be made. We've made a material that we have devices to play it back from. We've made a recording that we can access in the future, but should that be lost to us, the stone and the object itself are another door to access that history. So an equivalence is made here between the messages that are communicated by the stones, the stoniness of stones in and of themselves, worn close to the skin on a pendant, and whose influence has to be surmised or extrapolated or guessed at by the wearer, and the human specialist expert knowledge of the gemologist shared through Karen's interviews her voice sent through the stones to produce a record for future playback. Marina Warner wore the ruby pendant and she offered a short text based on her experience. She wrote, in the largest ruby of Karen's pendant, the lightly scored marks deep inside its translucent interior could be drawings, not from the cosmos beyond this planet, but from inside its core. In this case, the scratches offer a registry of the sounds made when the rock was settling and the earth's body was drawing breath. Warner's text explicitly conjures up a kind of mineral or geological time, a time before the rock was extracted and cut and polished and made into a crystal, a temporal trace of the movement of the earth captured in the beds of corundum in which rubies are formed. And in Dubbin Davidson's works, the gem itself becomes a kind of sound fossil, a sonic imprint of the past, an inaudible time crystallized in mineral form. And reflecting on how these stones might be then made to speak, Warner mused that the collector of stones, philosopher and writer Roger Calois, used to scrutinise certain gems in his collection. Of a meteorite, he wrote that after cutting and polishing it, there will appear and glitter different sparks of the geometry proper to the specimen, interlacings of triangles, imbricated polygons. These methods will procure the only drawings we know that are not of this earth, as in a meteorite drawing. So Roger Calois is often remembered for his split from the Surrealists and his friendship with Bataille, and he wrote really great stuff on mimicry and mimesis and praying mantises. Mm -hmm. And he introduced Latin American authors like Georges-Louis Bourguet to the French-speaking audiences through his association with publishing houses in the 70s. But he also had this really incredible collection of minerals, some of which were displayed in the Venice Biennale a couple of years ago, in 2013, where you might have seen them. All of them are in the Museum of Natural History in Paris where they're currently being digitised. And these are some of the slides. 
1970, he put some of his thoughts on his mineral collection rendered in this vertiginous lyrical prose, which is a pure delight to read, even in English, translated into a book called The Writing of Stones, L'Ecriture de Pierre. And what Calois liked most about his stones was their silence, their inscrutability, their refusal to offer up meaning easily or to be read in an instant. And at the conclusion of this book, which was accompanied by this series of images, he <coughs> pondered on the hypnotic profusion of images that emerged unintentionally from the surfaces of these rocks. Dendrites, onyx, quartz crystals, agates. I could hardly refrain, he confessed, from suspecting some ancient diffused magnetism, a call from the centre of things, a dim, almost lost memory, or perhaps a presentiment, pointless in so puny a being of a universal syntax. So he's talking about a kind of language that is made by the earth and not by humans. This is a syntax that predates human thought, close to what the New Zealand artist Chris Braddock has called the contagious field, a field that pre-exists all things, language on a kind of cosmic scale, we might say. As a mystic materialist, Calois exalted in the silence and inscrutability of the mineral, the logic, the sleep in the lair and the dark night of the seam. He wrote of the nakedness of gems before cutting, wherein, quote, their lies concealed and at the same time revealed a mystery that is slower, vaster and graver than the destiny of an ephemeral species. So there's also a, a question here of scale, of our relationship to that geological time and of human time in relationship to the depths of a mineral history. So how does the concept of a sound fossil help us think about this? I guess there's a boundary, there's a goal here to disturb what I think is a false boundary between inorganic and organic material, which is usually hinged on this uh, false boundary between life and death that often is super prevalent in Western thinking and is really very much not prevalent everywhere else. So when I talk about mineral ontology, I'm moving towards an idea of a, a state of being that's not predicated on a living, dead, organic, inorganic binary. And secondly, I'd like to think about how mineral ontology contributes to philosophies of time. So I'm not really interested in claiming that the stones are, uh, you know, have, they have a soul, although there is all this really fantastic stuff that medieval gemologists have written. The post-medievalists are really awesome on this, of the virtue of rocks and the different emotional states that can be ascribed to different kinds of minerals or the birth of a crystal. This, that's an amazing thing. But what I want instead to focus on is this idea of an ethics of being in which living and non-living binaries might be said to be dissolved or corroded or what it might be like to conceive of the idea of being after time. The term fossil is from the Latin fossilis, the Western word fossil, from the Latin fossilis, which originally meant obtained by digging. And unlike its contemporary usage, originally for, it originally referred to everything that came out of the ground. So gemstones, petrified objects, ancient relics, human and non-human made things. And the modern scientific usage of the term defines fossils as the prehistoric traces or remains of plant or animal life, so life preserved in geologic formations. Humans have been studying and analysing fossils for centuries. Aristotle was writing about them in the 4th BC, but it was not until the mid-16th century that this link between the organic material and the fossil was sort of concretized. In terms of sonic research, a sound fossil is an ancient record of acoustic activity. This is the work that I originally encountered it in, which doesn't make any sound at all. It's just literally a neon that says sound fossil. It's a sound trapped in material form. And it's a, it's a word that's used in both archaeoacoustics and paleosonics. So in archaeoacoustics, the sound fossil 
is a, is a way of reconstructing lost oral and audible histories. So you talk about like the audibility of ancient rock art sites or the cave designs of tombs and how, the audi how, how those places may have been constructed for sonic rather than any other kind of purpose. Or well, we can ask Ros Bant more about that then. I'm terrified now. Um, and paleosonics is, con is committed to hearing prehistoric environments. I love this word, paleosonics. In 2012, there was a team of researchers who um, reconstructed the sound of a cricket that was, that was living in a Jurassic forest. It was a 165 million year old cricket. And they found a, a fossil specimen of this cricket. And by comparing the sound making devices, because all of the crickets sound making things are on its back with the living specimens of today, they managed to get a record of how that cricket might've sounded in a forest in the Jurassic period. And from that then construct a picture of how the landscape was because, you know, there was these certain frequencies and calls that the fossils would need to make in order to get around different trees and forests and communicate with each other. So this is paleosonics. In 2014, Pierre Huy created a film of the interior of a 13 million year old piece of fossilized amber. This is piece is out at Tarawara if you'd like to go and see it or if you haven't seen it already. He called it de-extinction. He described the project as a navigation through stone, quote, in search of the earliest known specimen caught mid-copulation 30 million years ago. In creating the work, he used high-tech medical and scientific cameras to negotiate <coughs> lithic territory. A universe frozen inside a suspended moment. Perspective flips scale, the fragment becomes a cosmos. Forensic details of fossilized inclusions like droplets of water and bubbles. The reticulated mosaic of an insect's eye act as navigational markers in a liquefied space with no horizon, no gravity, and no end. Amber is a form of slow catastrophe, the critic Jeremy Miller wrote, a transformation of the resin which once flowed thickly down branch and trunk before these extremities were replaced with those of heat and pressure. The protagonists of de-extinction, these fucking insects, Pierre sometimes talks about this work as being a piece of necroporn, the title refers to the contemporary practice of species resurrection initially popularized through Jurassic Park. So de-extinction is a real thing. It's a, it's a principle of resurrection where you take the DNA from an animal that has been preserved in amber and you use it to reanimate life. And although it was science fictional in 1990 when Jurassic Park was created, it is actually a technique that has been, they have had, I mean, I'm sure everything that they've died has created and I have terrible visions of things like, you know, Sigourney Weaver, alien, there's somewhere anyway we won't go we won't go there far but visible in death at the moment of life the insect's genetic material has been preserved for millennia a reminder of the permeable border between animate and inanimate states and on the soundtrack and this is particularly interesting for my purposes this sound is this substratum of really dense low frequencies with these sort of whirs and clicks and the sounds are the audible record of the camera negotiating the stone as it penetrates the fossil so it's, an, it's almost an impossible image that he's captured in this, this liquefaction of, of a solid physical state. Um, and all of, the, all of the sound that we hear while we negotiate that space is the sound of the fossil around us, generated by the motion control camera as it negotiates the territories, the sound of an image being created then, the sound of a construction of a universe, the sound of resistance, a reminder of context, in a seemingly liquefied zone. 
The idea that environments and artifacts can unintentionally act as imprints of sonic activity radically redefines the time frame of sonic production. In 1839, Charles Babbage, in his compellingly titled On the Permanent Impression of Our Words and Actions on the Globe We Inhabit, wrote that the air is one vast library on whose pages are forever written all that man has ever said or woman whispered. I wish that the woman didn't have to be the one to whisper. There in their mutable but unerring characters mixed with the earliest as well as the latest size of mortality stand forever recorded, perpetuating the united movements of particles. If the air we breathe is the never failing historian of the sentiments we have uttered, earth, air and ocean are the eternal witnesses of the acts we have done. And this is a sort of really super idea in a way, but it's actually um, closer to the truth than he thinks. The idea that sound is actually imprinted into the environment around us so that the earth is an acoustic witness to history is something that contemporary scientists, at least since post-1964, have linked to cosmic microwave background radiation. This is Robert Morrison's box with the sound of its own making, which is also, I guess, like Pierre's work, which is a kind of box with the sound of its own making. So this, is, um, this has a three hour long soundtrack, which is literally the sound of the process that it took to make the work. And I have never seen this work and I've never heard this work, but I love, I love it as an idea. And apparently the only person who really sat through the whole thing was John Cage in Morris's studio, who, who treated it as a performance, which I also love. Um, but so I'm talking generally about boxes with the sound of their own making now, thinking of the fossil and thinking of the universe. So in New Jersey in 1964, studying the radio emissions of the Milky Way, the radio astronomers Penzias and Wilson picked up strange and unexpected background hiss on Bell Labs' large horn antenna, which is what we're looking at. And they were convinced that the apparatus was faulty, so they took the whole thing apart and cleaned it out and removed all the pigeon shit and got rid of all the pigeons that had been nesting in it, and they couldn't get rid of this sense of interference. <coughs> Meanwhile, at New Jersey's Princeton University, which was about 50 miles away, the physicist Robert Dickey was proposing that had the Big Bang occurred, there should be traces of low-level radiation dispersed and audible throughout the universe. And before he could test out this hypothesis, he was contacted by Penzias and Wilson, and they told him about this hiss that they couldn't get rid of. And what he realised that what they'd actually stumbled across was the sound of the creation of time which they subsequently got a Nobel Prize for, even though they didn't. <laughs> anyway, the 13.8 billion year old sonic residue or sound fossil was subsequently identified as cosmic microwave background noise. And actually this was two years before Robert Morris made Box with the sound of its own making. Penzias and Wilson's story was later taken up by the French artist Laurent Grasso in his exhibitions at the Centre Pompidou in Paris and Sound Fossil at Sean Kelly Gallery in New York in 2010. Inspired both by the myth of extracting audio recordings from ancient pottery, which I could also go into, but which is another whole thing, and the possibility of hearing the Big Bang. Grasso's exhibition juxtaposed this actual soundtrack, 13.8 billion year old sonic rev remnants of the birth of the sound of time, with an impression of the first wireless radio antenna, which was designed by Tesla, which is, this, um, which is that pole there that you see with the sphere at the top. So the sonic trace was reconstituted, reconstituted as a soundtrack for his film, and which screened concurrently with objects on display. 
and the sound itself emanated from these four copper and wood speakers. The critic Pierre Arnaud wrote that the sound coming from the speakers sounded like a badly tuned radio. Is it the signal picked up by the horn antenna or is it the soundtrack of the film projected in front of the model and which by association makes the apparatus look like a cinema making device? He described Grasso's work as a kind of ready-made fossil and linked it to an archaeomodernity in which the speculative dimensions of magic and the occult were no longer occluded by a rational or logical frame. There is another way of approaching this material though. The sound of the creation of the universe is exemplary of a kind of fossilization that gained prominence in philosophical discourse after the publication of this book, Quentin Miyasu's After Finitude in 2006. So in this book, Miyasu coined the term archifossil, archfossil, archifossil in French, to describe a remnant of the universe confirmed by science, science, as existing before the beginnings of terrestrial life. So everything before, you know, Earth, life on Earth. How do we know? You know, what is that? What is that? How do we even understand that? For Miyasu, the term of the arch fossil is not limited to earthbound matter. It can encompass any event or ancestral statement, as he calls them about the existence of the universe prior to human thought. So we're talking about a world that's constituted before we even start thinking about it. This is useful to Miyasu because it enables the possibility that everything would not lapse into nothingness if we stopped thinking about it. This is a classic philosophical conundrum, you know, what's inside the box. It is useful, in other words, because it offers a material vehicle to posit the existence of time without thinking. Miyasu's book, amongst other things, tackled what he called the correlationist circle, the idea that you cannot think of something outside of thought. If the world is only ever a correlate to thought, then the world can only ever be thought for us. So this is the idea, you know, that we can't know what it's like to be a bat or a chair or a kiwi fruit or a stone. And all of those narratives are kind of projected onto those forms through the voice in a lot of instances. The counter-argument is that, of course, reality is not chained to human perception and the universe predates the emergence of thought. It continues to exist even when we stop thinking about it. A 3.billion-year-old fossil found in a chunk of Australian sandstone, which is the oldest, one of the oldest in Australia, is not created at the moment that it's discovered, just as the sound of a galaxy emitted 13.2 billion years away from Earth is not generated at the moment that it is heard, but importantly, it is accessed in the present. It is accessed in the now. So there's this movement of the ancestral time to us in this moment as we comprehend it, as it's made audible. In her 2008 book, Chaos, Territory and Art, Elizabeth Gross writes that art and nature, art in nature share a common structure, that of production for its own sake, production for the sake of profusion and differentiation. Art takes what it needs, she says, the excess of colours, forms, materials from the earth, to produce its own excesses, sensations with a life of their own, sensations as non-organic life. Sensations as non-organic life, that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty out there statement. We often think of sensations as being entirely related to organic material. Like, what is a sensation if it's not something that's created with organic matter? But she's, and she's talking about this painting actually by Kathleen Pecciari, the mountain devil lizard. And in this country, the, the mountain devil lizard is, um, a figure that carries a bag of ochre around its neck and actually is the one that colours the landscape instead of the other way around. So instead of the, the colours being transferred from, like the, the animal literally makes the landscape as it moves through it, as it tracks through that journey. She quotes Deleuze and Guattari on this, who wrote in 1994 that if nature is like art, this is because it always combines two living elements in every way, universe, 
house, Heimlich, unheimlich, territory, deterritorialization, finite melodic compounds, and the great infinite plane, the small and the large refrain. And it is in part because of art's capacity to manifest this idea of sensation as non-organic life that art can only ever be an uneasy collaboration between human and non-human forces, between minerals, between mineral, mineral ontologies and non-mineral ontologies. So in terms of sound fossils or speaking stones, the idea that environments and artifacts can record what is around them unintentionally without us, without agency, without us doing anything, that they just kind of imprint has this um, double ontology of materiality that I was talking about earlier, where the material itself operates beyond and outside of its deployment in an art context. It does something more than what the artwork is asking it to do. And I think that's actually really useful. It means that the materials that are being used in the artwork are not just that they don't lose their own power when they are sucked into a gallery system or reconstituted for other use. So they still are a stone, a paint, a mineral. They have that somehow. And this is something, you know, this is just something I'm thinking through. And the mechanism by which it takes process is the trace. The trace. The trace of time outside of thought manifested in the present. The sound heard through the horn antenna in New Jersey does not exist in the past or ancestral time, as I was saying. It's not tied to a moment before consciousness. It is apprehended as a material trace of the ancestral in the present. And if we think back to Dubbin and Davidson's Gemstones, this is the same trace described by Warner when she wrote of the markings left by the breath of the earth that were indelibly imprinted into the rubies, into the hexagonal structure of a single ruby worn on a pendant around her neck. But what is interesting here is that the trace isn't seen as something that belongs primarily to the realm of the animate or the living. It's not necessarily regarded as a property of human projection. The trace calls up a spectral absent presence it's not the structural logic of life, but is rather the primary symptom or affect of time. So in Derrida's thought, everything, he has this, what, what we might call organic chauvinism, where he tends to only think of the trace as being circumscribed in things that were alive. But we'd like to, I'd like to kind of suggest that, of course, things that weren't alive in, in our very limited way also have trace properties, also have trace structures because of this sequencing of time. And the door is here open to a reading of the trace that takes it beyond the realm of the animate or the living towards the trace structure of the non-living, the mineral, the not yet living or the never living. In this preference for the living or the vital or the organic, you can see it all the way through Derrida's thinking. In 2003, just before his death, he observed that what unites living beings or what produces their commonality is what he called the finitude of life. So remember when I was talking about the river before, the idea that the river is always going somewhere and it will actually terminate and end. And in his model of subjectivity, that trace structure is tied to this sort of common, commonality of finitude. It's a death-bound subjectivity, in other words, where the self is only constituted by its termination. Instead of its you know, transformation into rain and condensation and evaporation and all the things that we know are actually possible. When Dubbin and Davidson began to think about how to represent their project, making a record, they quickly dismissed the standard temporal protocols of gallery-based exhibitions. It was shown in a gallery, but other, brace, other voices and other times also uh, striated these objects. In 2013, in an artist-run space in Paris, making a record was incorporated into Dubbin and Davidson's exhibition, A Drusy Vein, which is another gemologist word 
For gemologists, the druse refers to the sparkling of crystals that is above a mineral vein that is accessible on the surface. So it's the sign that you know that a vein uh, is present. The exhibition riffed on this notion of a central structure embellished or accreted through mineral growth. And they did that in a, in a kind of a curatorial logic um, by what they called inclusions, which took the form of different events that were added to or accreted or grew throughout the development of the exhibition in the gallery. And this word inclusion also borrows from geology, where it is known as a, um, as a foreign body enclosed inside a mineral or rock. So this is a diamond with a ruby inside it. So the diamond's actually grown around the ruby. And very importantly here, the inclusion is always older than the material in which it is contained. So it's like an alien that, it's an alien that predates the life of its host. And you could do a whole lot of amazing stuff here about colonization and inclusions. But in the catalogue essay for the exhibition, the curator Maxime Guiton offered this description of the Drusy vein. The vein originates from the rocky cavities, but its presence only manifests itself to the onlooker through the striation which appears on the surface. The trace precedes the inscription. It is to the observation of this discrete trace which points to the location of a possible treasure that the work of these artists invites us. Gathering structure and sedimentation as a natural development, the exhibition takes its rhythm from the weekly inclusions of works and events, a concert, a reading, a screening, a performance, a talk, a conversation. So she's, he's using it as a curatorial structure, as a logic there. By doing so, it continually modifies the nature of what is exposed and potentially encountered. For one of these inclusions, um, they invited the geologist Violin Sorta, who I mentioned before, uh, who works at the Museum of Natural History in Paris, to do a conversation. And she took the diamond as the starting point for her talk. Diamonds are formed from pure carbon. I learned a lot of weird stuff about gems writing this. Diamonds are formed from pure carbon cells under conditions of intense heat and pressure around 150 kilometers, 150 kilometers under the surface of the earth. The majority of diamonds are formed this way, natural diamonds. That's kind of an amazing thing. And the oldest ones on Earth are close to 3 billion years old, expelled by volcanic activity from under the Earth's crust towards the surface of the world. Within the diamond, she said, encapsulated in the infinitely small, hides the whole history of the deep Earth, the primitive Earth, its physiology. It suffices that we know how to shrink down our thought, how to read this minuscule mineral alphabet. And to us, the diamond will speak the language of the depths, the language of secrecy, the world of silence. It allows us to penetrate the impenetrable, to make this impossible journey, the journey to the center of the earth. Of course, Sauter is a geologist, so the stones might be silent. Their language is to her comprehensible. This idea of a mineral alphabet that can be read, the idea of penetrating the impenetrable, revealing the physiology of what went before. For Sauter, the diamond is a fossil record of geologic time and it can be made to speak. For the final inclusion in this project, Dubbin and Davidson invoked a very different kind of mining or a very different kind of subterranean activity, this time of the subconscious kind. They provided the curator, Maxime, with the sapphire pendant and they gave him a recording of the sapphire record to listen to. Guiton was then hypnotised by a professional hypnotist in Paris while he was holding the stone and a written transcript and an audio copy of this session was made available in the gallery. 
So the flow of information here moves sort of like a rumor or in a wave, takes on the form of a story. The stories of their stones and their capacities to speak is altered through waves of transmission and reiteration, protension, retention, deferral and delay. Under hypnosis, Guiton spoke of pyramids and a blue star, of a beach in Sardinia, of hexagons and a sensation of slipping, and of stories of the jewel that he had heard once before. And we have here again a question of access, of access to informations and of the silence of stones. A different kind of knowledge is invoked, a knowledge that is neither transparent nor rational, but subterranean, ambivalent and contingent. A kind of knowledge where questions of provenance and origin, this idea of what time, who, are redistributed to encompass sensations of proximity and distance, significance and indifference. And this is the Nica Crystal Cave in Mexico, which um, there's a photograph that Pierre made, that Pierre Wig made of this cave that's in the Tarawara exhibition at the moment, some of the oldest crystals in the world. But we don't need to actually go that far to find this, um, this way of thinking about the material world and this refusal of a hardline division between cycles of natural and human-made time. We can find one living on the walls of the caves in the Kimberley in a series of images known as the Guion Guion. Guion being the Nigarian name for a long-beaked bird and is attributed, this, the bird is attributed as the author of these images. They're estimated to be between 40 and 70,000 years old, but the actual creation date of these figures is troubled by a very astonishing circumstance. In the lines traced onto the rocks, living bacteria and fungi inhabit. They thrive in the painted areas of the image. As the curator Minkia Mirkan notes, and Tom Nicholson can tell you if I'm pronouncing that right, who was in this show, bacteria and fungi co-produce a a process of continuous restoration while etching the pictures deeper into the rock. So they're basically resisting any attempts of historical chronological dating because the pigment is alive. All attempts to date the works through carbon analysis have been thwarted. And this extraordinary circumstances, we kind of might think of it as a renewal or, 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 or of authorless images, a transference of ancestral time through the continual biological update of living pigments. It, mirrors the time patterning that's found in the Nigarian and Murabata peoples of the region. And from my readings around this, I get a very much sense of a sense time understood geographically and geologically and laterally and not at all horizontally. Jaspers has noted these images are not images of ancestors made by the Aboriginal people, they are the ancestors. So this is an iconological model of time. It renders any attempt to distinguish between the past and the present, the animate and the mineral, the biological irrelevant. It's another kind of speaking stone. These lithic assemblages of minerals, bacteria, time and fungi tell a different story. They tell a different story about the ways in which we might learn to listen to the earth speak and the ways in which art can enable the possibility of time travel. In 1938, nearly there now, as part of his lifelong project seeking out the metaphysical parameters of world, the European philosopher Heidegger famously compared a human, an animal and a stone and he argued on the basis of consciousness that the stone was worldless, the worldless, the animal was poor in world and the human was the only world forming. But I think that he was wrong. If we have to take seriously this possibility that stones can speak, 
that minerals can be heard, that the lithic is audible, that chronologies can be, can be troubled through continuous bacterial renewal, then the parameters for welding are necessarily widened. And this possibility then arises for a philosophy of time that encompasses not only human and non-human animals, but trees, viruses, minerals, rocks, bacteria, 13.8 billion year old traces of radioactive activity. Is this what it means to call up the writing of the cosmos or to hear the stones speak? The writer has disappeared, Calois declared of his own mineral collection, but each flourish, evidence of different miracles, remains an immortal signature. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitvega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au